Live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics. Featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Democrat Michael Bauer, Libertarian Brian Lambrecht, Progressive talk show host Celine Muakil, and Nationalist Jennifer Nevins. Our program tonight coming to you from our own base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8029. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you would like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to tweet me a comment, which is my preferred way to get commentary during the show, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And, of course, you can join us on the World Wide Web, Beyond the Beltway, not only live every Sunday night, but the show is there. If you miss it, it's there the following days and months and years later. And, of course, you can watch us live on Facebook, Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont Facebook page. That is also uh, live and lively. And, again, there's virtually no excuse for you not to... See this show every week, whether it's live or on some form of delay, uh, digital delay, I guess we say. Uh, again, another t- t- I say this every <laughs> every week at the beginning of this program. I, I don't know what we're going to do if we have someone other than Donald Trump as president. We're going to have to look for news, perhaps. But again, uh, I want to start with you, Michael Bauer, our card-carrying uh, Democrat at the table. Um, how devastating do you believe Michael Cohen's testimony was? about the president was it was it a was it a killer well asked or something else well i i think michael cohen's testimony there's two reactions to it the people who who think donald trump is the devil incarnate absolutely believe everything michael cohen said the people who who love and support donald trump think michael cohen has lied before and he lied again Here's the importance, I think, of Michael Cohen's testimony, ultimately. He dropped a lot of other names of people like Alan Weisberg, who he says will corroborate portions of his testimony. No doubt they will be called to testify also before congressional committees, and that includes members of the Trump family. I want to ask uh, Jennifer Evans, who is our card-carrying Republican, conservative, nationalist, you like to call yourself. My question to you is, in all that testimony, and, and there was a lot of salacious testimony, there were two things that jumped out. When he was asked whether there was any, when he had any knowledge of, you know, uh, collaboration with the, the Russians, he said no. So if he lied on all these other things, I would assume that on that point you may believe him. And the other thing, when, when asked about the alleged incident in the elevator with Melania, I mean, he went out of his way. He said, absolutely, Donald Trump would never hit anybody, never hit uh, Melania. And, and, and if he was a true, bona fide, pathological liar, why did he not potentially lie about those two things? Because, by the way, either one of those things, had he, had he confirmed those, I think they were far more devastating in the body politic than anything else he confirmed. Well, you know... To answer that question, you have to ask yourself, why would Michael Cohen's attorney, Lanny Davis, allow his client uh, to step into that kind of a perjury trap? I mean, here he is 
Okay, he'd just been uh, convicted, uh, pled guilty, eight counts of lying. He was sentenced in December, and he's going to serve three years in prison, could have gotten up to 65, and yet he's spilling these beans. So I look at that and I say, well, why didn't he say those things? Maybe because he could have been sued for saying those things. Maybe because those things weren't true. He could say these other things like he talked in code to me and wrote this check and he meant this and this yeah, by yeah. it. Because mm-hmm. that's not easy to prove. And he can right. leave breadcrumbs like he left, like Michael was talking about. But saying, alleging that he, that he beat Melania and that he did these other things, that's something that you can prove or disprove. And I don't think he was in a position to put himself in that position. Salim Uwakel, uh, what is your reaction? And also you're a talk show host, so you did, you did a show uh, last evening. Uh, what's been the reaction of, of your audience and the people that you speak with about uh, about Michael Cohen? And, and does anyone in the African-American communities, at least in Chicago, do they care about this testimony at all? Yeah, some, some do. I mean, uh, people want to get rid of Trump. And, and this is, this is uh, Trump's mo- most lethal uh, enemy, um, is the, the Mueller probe. And so whatever, whatever, in, you know, whatever enhances that uh, potency is, is something that a lot of people are going for. Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who, who think Mike, Michael Cohen is, is, a, is a very faulty um, witness. I mean, he, he, he went along with Trump all of these years, and now suddenly he's repenting. It doesn't seem genuine to a lot of people. Uh, Brian so Lambert, you're, you're a libertarian. What about the people you hang around with? Do any of them care about Michael Cohn and this investigation? Absolutely not. <clears throat> Most people this week in the libertarian circles have been talking about how two nuclear countries were shooting at each other between India and Pakistan. They were talking about the North Korea talks, which are very important with, Come, uh, with, coming up. with Trump. Uh, uh, Victoria's Secret is closing hundreds of stores across the country. Oh my this God. is a big deal that uh, people cared about more, as opposed to <laughs> listening to Congress, listening to this testimony, a bunch of generalities of people saying things that you can find hundreds of samples on per hour on Twitter at any moment. Nothing was revealed. There was nothing new that was stated. And again, there was no actual proof of anything. It was boring. It was dull. It was repetitive. Well, wait. There was proof of something, though. I mean, one of the things that I think Michael Cohn did was produce a reproduction of a check that he that was signed by Donald Trump for $35,000. And that reproduction that has the president's signature on it, we can argue whether Michael Cohn was, was being honest about what it was for, but with Donald Trump's signature on it, shows some involvement by Donald Trump in something. Right, but he was his attorney at that time that the check was written, so it's really hard. There was nothing, obviously, in the memo that said, hey, this is for the Stormy Daniels payoff. So it's really difficult to say what that check was, and you have to ask yourself, too, in my mind, if you're doing something illegal or improper, would you write a check for that type of a thing anyway? Well, when Alan Weisberg gets subpoenaed, to testify, mm-hmm. he'll certainly be asked about that check and be asked, what was the check for? Right. Also, and, when you talk about uh, you know, whether or not he said anything that, that could be proven, uh, disproven, that could lead to a, you know, a, a, a more charges of lying, it, it would seem to me that whether or not Michael Cohn ever went to the Czech Republic is easily traced. I can't believe that the news media has not already traced that. I mean, you don't, you don't go there without, you know, going through the State Department. So, I mean, that, that's easily found out. And again, if he lied about that, then that opens another can of worms about to what extent was he involved in having meetings during the campaign that might have led to some of the allegations in the 
uh, in the report. Right. You know, I, but, I, think but, that, I think there's another effect, though, from Michael Cohn's testimony. Keep in mind, it was carried not just on, on cable television. It was carried on the, the, on the uh, networks as well. And, and whether you like Michael Cohn or not, whether you agree with what he says or not, it creates a certain taint that here's another slimy guy who is in Trump's circle and, and you know, and, and you wonder, why have all these slimy guys in Trump's circle? I don't disagree with you on that one. The optics on it um, are less than favorable. Yeah. Does it also raise the possibility when, when conservatives say that the networks are against Donald Trump, does the fact that all of the networks carried this basically gavel to gavel does that reinforce their position yes, that the does. networks are out to get Donald yeah, Trump? It does. Because they haven't done it for a while. That's of how it's being interpreted people. anyway, tri- right. in a tribal. Right. Uh, Back shortly from Chicago. Standing up for what's right, helping out when things go wrong, seeking the truth, and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera. Beyond the runway and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago, and uh, Jennifer, you wanted to make a point about the timing of uh, the hearings. You know, it is so difficult um, for me even to get down in the nitty-gritty about about this uh, the Cohen hearings when they shouldn't have been taking place when Trump was doing this really critical diplomatic mission, talking about denuclearization on the uh, Asian Peninsula, and at the same time we have this spectacle engineered by the Democrats uh, with a convicted felon. It's absolutely outrageous to me. I mean, I would use the word unpatriotic. I know people might take issue with that, but I don't know other, what other word to describe it. Because then you have the media saying, well, um, Trump is probably going to get distracted and tweet, and he's going to look like a fool. Well, then why are you giving him the opportunity to do it in the first place? If the Democrats were so concerned about what happened in North Korea, why would you take the president's eye off the ball by having these hearings in Washington at the precise time when he's supposed to be doing something critical for not just us but for the world. I find Michael, it really gross. what's your reaction? Because I think... The, uh, come on, Michael, you know, let, us, let us know. <laughs> the visit to Vietnam, I think, was scheduled first, and the scheduling of the hearings came second. So it, it smacks of a political move to embarrass the president. I don't know where the really smacks of a political move. Keep in mind, two of the days Michael Cohen testified, he testified behind doors uh, in uh, secrecy between two, before two committees. It was only one of his three days of testimony that was televised. And, and they, uh, wanted him, they wanted him to testify earlier. Remember, he had, he had, to, he had to postpone it right, because he was right, threatened. Right. Yeah, well, the time... I mean, the, 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 the Democrats could have controlled when he appeared, mm-hmm. and they chose not to because they wanted to embarrass the president because whether or not they laid a glove on him legally, 
for insofar as the 2020 campaign, they spent what seven or eight hours just you know completely destroying the guy again with a lot of self you know you know committed uh, allegations or or, or actions. But um, again, and then you have all the networks carrying it. I can't remember the last time all the networks carried a congressional hearing. I, I think it was Iran Contra, mm. but I, I can't. There wasn't anything during the Obama administration. Again, if there's anybody uh, out there listening who knows the specifics, there are, about they, you know there it are some very they, often. There it used to happen people. all the time. I think we're going to have to be used to the fact that we're going to be able to conduct foreign policy. And we're going to be able to conduct domestic policy simultaneously. And now, there are some, and there are some people who say that this was just as egregious as as Iran Contra, mm-hmm. that that you know that what, what might that what Cohen revealed was the, the, some very shady behavior on the part of the President of the United States, and that we all should be. Is it? Yeah. Right, here's that. a question. We'll, we'll 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 button up the conversation about the hearing uh, with this question. We may, may may take it through the segment. How much of what a person does before they get to be president of the United States is relevant and should be researched and digested and regurgitated? I'm not just talking about Donald Trump, but I'm talking about anybody in the future. I dated a Latvian girl in high school that spoke Russian. That's going to come and get me one day when I run for office. It will. It will keep you from higher office. I think what you did in high school versus if you were a presidential candidate and what you do in your candidacy – for the president of the United States are two very, very different things. I know. And I think what you do in your candidacy for president of the United States is highly relevant. Well, it, it is highly relevant, but, but I would like to know what is so highly relevant about Jackie Spears' question, um, does Donald Trump have a love child? Is this really – is this the kind of spectacle that we needed – uh, no, to it's see, not. it's ridiculous. It's, it it's ridiculous. absurd. Did he uh, backhand her in an elevator? Um, there's a rumored tape out there that mm. exists. I mean, th- this was relevant. Right. If you want to get down to financial malfeasance, which is really what the whole thing was about, was financial malfeasance. He said there was no collusion. This is what Cohen says. Um, that's fine. But then they get to put out the salacious details of things that are none, it's none of their business that's and none right. of our business, and we're supposed to call that fair play. But it's wasn't Whitewater? Well, but wasn't Whitewater like that? Uh, Whitewater was a disaster, and it was a disaster for the Republicans, and it was overreach from the Republicans. But I will say that that was concerning an act, right or wrong, that happened, allegedly was proven, in the Oval Office. Love Child, they're talking about back in the 1990s. The Whitewater investigation started with uh, the Rose Law Firm Uh, and the actions of Hillary Clinton long before she was the first lady of Arkansas. But one of the interesting things about about the Cone testimony on on Wednesday Mm -hmm. was – with all due respect, two of the attack dogs from the Republican side, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, you know, were going after Cohen and his credibility, but were never defending the president on any of the allegations that that Michael Cohen made. And that's something that Chris Christie brought up. Right. That that they don't think the president – they may not think the president's defensible on this stuff, or they may not want to stick their neck out to defend the president because they're not sure of his integrity. Well, I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily true because the way I view it, too, is this was so egregious and outrageous that this convicted felon was up there talking about it. Um, maybe they were taking the tact that this shouldn't even be proceeding beyond even dignifying this isn't where we want to go. I guess you could make that argument. Chris Christie was saying the same thing you were saying, that okay. we didn't hear a defense of the charges. Um, how do you def- put up a defense against some of what Cohen was saying, though? It's, it's kind of well, difficult I, I, when, to do. When he referred to uh, uh, the president as 
as a, as a racist and a, and a con man. Those things certainly that was in the first thirty seconds of his of his testimony, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and he told a couple of stories about uh, reactions he's had with African Americans, mm-hmm. one of which was driving through the, the, the streets of Chicago. How did you react to that? Did that I, surprise? Doesn't surprise. I wasn't you. surprised at all. Right. Not at all. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm he said he said African-Americans would never vote for him because yeah, too they stupid. were too stupid. Yeah. Allegedly, he said Allegedly, that. he said Allegedly. But, Allegedly. but can I tell you the Republican that. response? I, the Republican response was so unbelievably insulting. They produced someone who used to work for the Trump Organization, <laughs> who's now some mid-level person at, I think, HUD, who's an African-American woman, and they have her stand there well, to show that he's not a racist. This, no, but, see that, but that, but that, that in and of itself, though, Michael, is insulting for you to say that because Lynn Patton then went on TV and said, I don't get put up by anybody. Nobody put me up. I walked up no, there on was, my own was accord. To say that it was a Shia tokenism. I to mean. say that she's a prop is denying her agency. And by saying that she, oh, she somebody said put some her up else. Is, is ridiculous. She could have said it sometime but else. But she was That's very – there was, no, very one, active with, with there was no one closer – to Donald Trump on a day-to-day basis, other than maybe the children. And she did it for a number of years. And the point I think that Representative Meadows was trying to make is that a racist would probably not have given a woman that kind of access yeah. for as long. I mean, that's yeah, you a, know, is that a relevant a question? Exactly. She was a prop. This okay. was not the time and place for her to rebut the testimony. She there says was she wasn't a, a prop. Who's to say who's a prop but the person who's supposedly the prop? She said she wasn't but a prop. But that trope of my best friend is black is, has been long discredited as a legitimate kind sure of Sure has. And that's yeah, basically what that, that was. That's know, basically well, what. Let, me, let, let, let me ask you then. What does it say to you when whether it's tokenism, whatever. I mean, when Donald Trump chose the person that was going to be, you know, work closest with him, um, that the woman happens to be African-American. How should people react to but that? See, this is, this is, we, we misinterpret what racism is. Well, I want yeah. you to, t- I want no, you to uh, tell r- racism, when we When people talk about Trump as a racist, he's not talking about perhaps his personal relationship with people. He's talking about a structural relationship that keeps African Americans in a position of disadvantage, and that's part of a, a, a syndrome that Trump is, is a, you know, he perpetuates with his policies. And how, and, and how is how is putting her in a position of power long before I think she's been with him for almost twenty years? How uh, before the spotlight was on him politically? How is putting her in a position of power and and other African American women as well? I don't see how that proves the point that you're making about how putting them in, in positions so, of So let me try helping you. Unpowered. Trump, as an er, in his early years as a real estate developer, was sued because apparently in, in some of his uh, developments, he didn't want to rent to uh, African-American couples. That was right? the charge. And, was and there was the charge, yeah. all right? And, 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 and the way the charge was uh, alleged is white couples would show up, and, and black couples would show up with identical credentials and identical income, and they would be willing to rent to the white couples and not the black couples. He was accused of racism. That's systemic racism. Right, and that wasn't proven, by the way, but well, that's it a was, charge. It was, tr- it was proven, and, and, and uh, on, a, on a more... Exactly, and on a more, on a more um, uh, personal level and, and, and local level, I know people who, uh, who also say that some of the major enforcers of this policy were black themselves. So they were the ones who who were enforcing Trump's racist policies. Right. No. They were black themselves. So that, that's often and that a, goes back to slavery. That goes exactly back to right. Exactly right. Exactly. Now let let me ask this question, then we, then we are going to move on. 
because you've made your comments ab about uh, the president and his sensitivity or lack of same mm -hmm. uh, with race relations. What signal does it send to you that he recently signed the, the criminal uh, uh, reform legislation? I'm very justice, happy about that. I and prison that. reform. I mean, but, but does a person who is and, – and would you acknowledge that the, the primary beneficiary – of that legislation is African Americans? Uh, not exclusively. Yes, okay. yes. Not exclusively. Not but exclusively. No. Okay, but, but, but here's yeah. my question. If that's if that's yes. true, is that the action of someone who in their heart is a racist? Well, it's, and you see you keep saying in their heart. I, I can't well, diagnose people's hearts. Well Bruce. explain to me oh, 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 how oh. you how you explain to me how you analyze that part of Donald Trump, the person who's been described by many as a racist. And then there is this public policy, which which no no previous president, including an African American president, ever was able to get it to the finish line. What does I, it? I, 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 want, I want to hear from. I want to hear from. <laughs> from, from what does it mean? To, what does it mean to you? That Donald Trump has done this, and others yeah, haven't. That he, that he demonstrated I, I he has the agency or the capacity to do that. I think that that's a wonderful thing that he can do that. I mean, I, but that but see that that it's almost. Beside the point, in, in many ways. I mean, I appreciate him doing that. I appreciate those gestures of personal um, empathy and whatnot. But I would appreciate more something sy systemic to, to alter the position of African Americans vis-a-vis the general American. And that, that's the main thing, too, is that is that uh, the, the policy you're talking about is <clears throat> in itself doesn't make it great rather than it's retroactively trying to fix a systemic racism that was built into the system a long time ago. Yeah, we got to pause. 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We, we put, put debt in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Uh, nice to have you with us this evening. And uh, we've got our guests around the table. And uh, Michael Bauer, we're going to let uh, you introduce yourself as we will the other guests. Yeah, I'm Michael Bauer. I'm involved in a host of both political and civic activities. And uh, one of them right now is I'm the chair of, chair of Lloyd Lightfoot's mayoral campaign, one of the two candidates that won the runoff uh, last Tuesday in Chicago to become the next mayor of Chicago on April 2nd. In addition, Bruce has given me a second of personal privilege to say yesterday was a very special day for my family. We had a family bat mitzvah of my great niece. What makes that so special is that my mom, a Holocaust survivor, a sole survivor, of her immediate family of 38, attended the second bat mitzvah of her second oldest great-granddaughter, 
my mom, who, God willing, will be 103 in two months. Mm. Phenomenal. Wow, wow. incredible. And she's still alive I, and well? She and is kick- alive and well, and, and her mind is sharp, and, uh, and uh, we FaceTime twice a day, and she goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Brian Lambrick. Brian, tell everybody who you are. Uh, hey, my name is Brian Lambrecht. I'm a liberty-loving, liberty-loving libertarian here in Illinois with the Libertarian Party of Illinois. Libertarians believe that gay married couples should have the right to own guns to defend their marijuana plants. We want to help end poverty by freeing the market and giving people individual freedom and choice in their lives. I'm an Uber driver. I love meeting people, talking to people, and uh, I'm here to answer some questions, have some fun with these wonderful people today. Good. Salim Muwakil. Hey, I'm Salim Muwakil. I'm a radio host at WVON Radio in Chicago. I'm also senior editor of In These Times newspaper, which has, uh, In These Times magazine, they would prefer me to call it. I've uh, been around for a long time. I've been doing journalism for a long time. In fact, Bruce and I were just talking about how long I've been on this show, um, at least 30 years. Uh, so I'm Before here your again. hair was gray. Before my hair was gray, yes. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Jennifer Evans. I am Jennifer Nevins. I am a nationalist conservative. I was a delegate to the RNC and uh, am still on a high from Trump's wonderful CPAC speech. I have been (laughs) smiling ear to ear uh, for the past 24 hours, and I am happy to be here. Uh, Let's talk about North Korea and whether or not, I think we talked earlier in the show, someone made a comment that it was was not successful. I want to get your reaction because you mentioned that that's one of the subjects you've been covering and the libertarians have positions on it. So what's your thought on it, Brian? Yeah, um, I I don't want to say that it's – I don't like the idea that there has to be a decision that it was successful or it was a failure. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can simply be an ongoing process. And if there's one thing we know about North Korea, it's definitely an ongoing process going on multiple uh, presidencies. And at the same time – and people are trying to say there was a failure because uh, since then the president has made uh, a few concessions. I like these concessions. Libertarians like them, uh, that we're going to be pulling back on two really big – war exercises, military exercises that we do with South Korea. Uh, He basically said we don't need to do them. They do antagonize North Korea, which we're admitting this finally. And the other one is that they're expensive. It's a big waste of money. We don't need to be doing that. Uh, This was decided months ago, though. They talked about this in the summer. And at the same time, he's been talking about possibly pulling some of our troops off of the demilitarized zone, which would be wonderful if we can do this. Concessions need to be made. I think that's part of the discussion, part of the debate, and I'm hoping that it'll keep going from this point forward. Now, conservatives, uh, conservatives were, were concerned about that he might give away the store, and yet many of them, including the, those in the national media, are saying that it was a failure. Right. Do you think it was a failure? No, I don't think it's a failure. I think that's called having it both ways. <clears throat> I think the fear was before he left that he was going to give away the farm, um, which didn't happen. Um, I think that really to kind of ping on what you were saying, Brian, there have been um, some remarkable successes already that have taken place. They didn't take place under other presidents, by the way, either. Um, Trump is the first Mm. president to meet with um, the North Korean dictator, whether it was him or his father or his predecessor. We've had four people that have been returned, Otto being one of them, but three other people um, who were hostages, really, in North Korea who were returned. Um, Korean War dead remains were returned. (coughs) And he's not shooting nukes over the Sea of Japan either. So there have been remarkable successes, and this is a link in the chain. I wish that something more could have been done on this trip, but there is strength in, in walking away and saying, I'm not going to buy it, and he didn't. But so. uh, you have to admit, and, and this is not clearly the major issue in the summit, 
but the president's comments about Otto Warmbier himself and that he believes Kim Jong-un was not involved, didn't know anything about it, it is actually so stunning, so hard to fathom uh, that that unfortunately it overshadows so much. And it's, that was an unforced error. I don't yeah. think that I would have advised him to say that. His exact comment, I think the wording is important, where he said, Hang I on, take just him a second. We're, we're going we're gonna to let the uh, president speak for himself. Uh, we've got uh, the, the quote from the president in the post-summit uh, uh, press conference that took place in Vietnam. Here it is. I don't believe that he would have allowed that to happen. It just wasn't to his advantage to allow that to happen. He tells me that he didn't know about it, and I will take him at his word. Now, again, uh, the, the Warm Beer family did not respond while the president was in Vietnam. However, they have issued uh, this following statement. They said, quote, Kim and his evil regime are responsible for the death of our son, Otto. Kim and his evil regime are responsible for unimaginable cruelty and inhumanity. No excuses or lavish praise can change that, end of quote. And that's Mr. and Mrs. Warmbier. Uh, Salim, your, your response, because I think it was, it, 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 it took, it, it became the big story that was coming out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I think that it exemplified the, the, the problem with, with the whole thing. It's too personality-based, um, that Trump is dealing with basically leader to leader, and, and our, our dip, diplomatic efforts are not normally conduct, conducted in that way. And so I think when I, when, I, when I say it was a failure, generally there seemed to not have been enough groundwork done uh, because when, when leaders meet, the, the case is generally settled, and all they had to do was sign a particular uh, agreement and, and make some ceremonial gestures. They, didn't, they couldn't do that because that, that groundwork wasn't done. And so I, I think that there was too much depending on his personal relationship with um, but the, the see, I, see, that's who Donald Trump is. I think Donald Trump, being a consummate salesman and marketing guy, he thinks he can basically <clears throat> walk into the room and, and, and close a deal and mm-hmm. spin everybody because of the strength of his personality. So my question to you is, or I want to get everybody around the table. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible that just the personality relationship between the two men can be such that they can be friendly, mm-hmm. they know each other, and if you know someone and you're friendly with them, you are less likely to want to use nuclear weapons to destroy the other person. And it is yes. it, it is and about personal relationships. Yes, and, and you know, I, I in fact, applaud it. Um, the president's efforts uh, to, to, to achieve a peaceful kind of right. relationship with And he with, said he would do this, by the way. And, and this it, is one of those things. It's absolutely the best thing for the world because we, you know, it, it helps no one for us to be on the brink of this kind of nuclear confrontation. I think, and, I mean, and, yeah. I and, think. and the Sea of Japan, the, the efforts he, he's, take, he's taken to, to stop that kind of, that kind of belligerent activity, um, the, the war games uh, in, in, the, 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 in the South. China. So well, all it, of that is. Is it really that important that we as a nation demand that North Korea not have nuclear weapons? If they had nuclear weapons and there was this agreement, granted, it might be based on personality, basically, you know what? We're not going to destroy you because we've already come to the conclusion that a military option for the United States isn't really an option for the United States because too many South Koreans 
or Japanese mm -hmm. or people living in Guam would be killed in any war that broke out. So is it a realization from the United States, this is not something we can do militarily as we have done historically in the past. Boy, that would we be wonderful. We can't do anything. We've got, a, we've got a guy, you know what, it's a mutual dis, uh, uh, you know, destructive relationship. And as long as we meet, as long as we meet and do the dance every six months and, and refurbish the personal relationship, um, maybe we can get along and North Korea will have their nuclear weapons, but they'll never use them. But I think the problem with that, though, is that who's standing behind North Korea? That would be China. And so when the Norks have the nuclear weapons, they are, they're easily manipulated by China. So we, the mutually assured destruction, we're not just dealing with uh, Kim Jong-un. We're dealing with China as well. They're, they're both on the same plane. And he takes his orders from China. And so um, letting them have nukes, it's not, really a, it's not really comparable to other countries having nukes in this way. So I think that you have to look at it that way. And I think it also doesn't what, What's wrong him. with peace uh, with, with China? Well, that would be a great thing, but we're not exactly dealing with a rational regime, no matter what kind of relationship Trump has with the North Koreans. And again, and, I think that Trump they are rational? easily... Trump can accomplish a lot with his personality, and I'm all for it. But I'm saying that I don't think allowing them to have nuclear weapons um, in the end is going to be something that Japan is going to accept, South Korea is going mm. to accept, and I think that they're easily um, manipulated I'm not so by sure. China. I, mean, I, I think that you've got South Korea out that are operating you know, on their own as, as well they, they can be. I mean, relationship between North and South, I mean, that has certainly been repaired significantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, having the cloud of the United States there to, to be on your side, that helps that discussion. But I would say that if you look at Donald Trump and, and you know, you know, granted these, uh, these sh sh you know, uh, show summits, I mean, if you have a summit every six to eight months between now and 2020, if indeed uh, Donald Trump makes it to 2020 or beyond, I mean, may maybe that's the price of peace. Maybe the price of peace is to have one of sham these summits. sham summits. But but no weapons are fired and and. But is that going to continue on past Trump's? Well, that's the big administration. Question. So unless he's thinking that maybe he just you know goes away and forgets and just keeps running for president. Maybe that's, that's a plan. Maybe that's the plan. That's the price of peace. One eight hundred seven two three eighty two eighty nine. When we come back, we're going to talk more about Otto Warm Beer. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. 
From Chicago, Illinois, where it is bitter, bitter cold uh, this evening. Uh, welcome back. Nice to have you with us from coast to coast and border to border. Tonight on Beyond the Beltway, and Michael Bauer, you were about to make uh, a point right. about... Uh, I think asking Kim Jong-un to denuclearize, we're forgetting about uh, a precedent that I'm sure is, is very cognizant in his mind, and that's Libya and Muammar Gaddafi. Yeah. Well, we negotiated an agreement with Muammar Gaddafi he agreed to, to give up his nuclear weapons. And then a couple of administrations later, we decided, oh, I don't like this guy anymore. And we uh, helped bomb him out of existence. So, and he didn't have his nuclear weapons at, at that point to defend himself. So I think going for nuclearization is really never going to happen. Mm. I agree you know, with that. I think containment is the key. What do you yes. think? I think that it would be ideal if containment was the key or, you know, would be enough in this situation. Um, I'm not sure when you're dealing with an unstable regime like this um, that it is. And we were talking about um, if Trump, you know, a lot of this is hinging on Trump's personality and his relationship with Kim. And if it's a good relationship, maybe they can just keep this perpetual thing going. But what happens when Donald Trump isn't in office anymore? He becomes ambassador to North Korea. <laughs> and he lifts to 120. I well, what, love it. What, but what also, but if if you if, if Dennis you, Rodman could do it, Trump if, you, if you let North Korea get away with this, uh, what does it say about Iran? Isn't Iran going to say, right. why don't you treat us the same way? Right. Yes. Uh, it's what do you say to sovereign nations that you know have a right to develop these things? What do you say to Taiwan if something happens to Taiwan and China is preparing to have a little you know sea and land invasion of that? Are, are we going to be stepping up to that as well? I, I don't view North Korea and Iran as uh, comparable countries. North Korea is increasingly having warm relationships. First of all, with its southern neighbor, South Korea. Right. And, and the relationships are warming up, whereas Iran is increasingly uh, uh, promoting terrorism throughout the Middle East. And Iran is a serious problem that I think we should treat very very differently. Well, they should all well, be treated well, differently, but at the same time, in Iran, you've got citizens that are starting to rise up against that, and they're starting to make their voices heard. They've been causing problems yes, all yes. last year, which is a beautiful thing, and I yes. hope they're successful. You're not going to get that in North what is Korea, it, by the way, what, following up on, on what the president had to say about Otto Ormbier, because uh, the media has reminded us that it was very similar to things that the president uh, said about uh, MSB and also said uh, to Vladimir Putin about mm. uh, the Khashoggi uh, murders. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the, the president's argument at, at CPAC the other day was, you know what, this is difficult. Of course I deal. I, you know, I love the Warmbier family. I love all this stuff. But I'm negotiating with a guy. Do I have to embarrass the guy I'm negotiating with? Do I have to diminish him? Because if I spend my time and, 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 and political capital diminishing him, then maybe we don't get the deal we need as a country. Mm. I mean, does everybody – I, I, I think mean, this is, a, this is a challenge of all – you know, diplomats for yeah, the last Yeah, but it's always, years. A challenge. it's always a challenge. And, and, and people say, have certain principles. Diplomacy has certain principles right. that, you, that you live. And especially when you're talking about human rights and, and the fact that uh, an American citizen has been, has been um, uh, violated in some way, you can't simply, you can't simply accept that. You there know, has to be some the, sort of principle. Is the, is the difference here, because you talked about it goes back several uh, generations, it goes back, you know, parties, Republicans, Democrats, liberal, conservatives. Is the difference here that Donald Trump has no principles? 
is the difference. He has no principles. No, my, my, my question, my question <laughs> oh. to you, my question to you, Jennifer, is is the difference here because Salim was making the point that there there has been U.S. policy which said we're not going to meet with North Korea, and then there's U.S. policy that says you know uh, if there are uh, if they have uh, uh, have captured people. Uh, we want we want those people released, and they have been. That's a positive part of this. Is people mm-hmm. have, and people have been returned, and remains have been returned. We got war remains too. War remains. That was a big so, deal. So the, the next question is, if 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 Donald Trump doesn't fall on the sword and admit or push uh, Kim Jong Un, yes, you did. You you killed Otto Warmbier. If he doesn't do that, he he is different. Than all of the pre- predecessor presidents. Right. Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot to but unpack. If he, that. But if he, but if he lets them off the hook, as a lot of people think he did, including myself, by I, I was I, I thought his comments were disgraceful, frankly. If he does that, he is doing something different than previous mm-hmm. presidents. Well, I would say that everybody, the worst to the best person, has principles. Uh, principles are a neutral thing. Uh, it's not a good thing or it's a bad thing. I think he has different, maybe different principles, maybe some unconventional principles and the way he's approaching that is, is unconventional. I think in my view where he went wrong with the whole auto thing is, no, I don't think he needs to rub it in. This is a dip- diplomatic mission. does not need to try to prove something with Kim on this point. He already made many statements against uh, Kim on this point. Yeah. But I think I would have avoided it. I wouldn't have gone out of my way to make the statement that Trump made about I choose to believe what uh, the North Korean leader said. I think it was an unforced error. I wouldn't have said it. I do think he said it. I know he knows that the, he is responsible for what happened. The leader of our country is always responsible for what happens. Um, and I know Trump knows that. I think he said it as a way of extending an olive branch to this individual. I would not have done it. It caused problems. I don't blame Otto's family for being upset. But I believe it was an attempt to negotiate and, hey, this is what I have to do and this is my goal. And unfortunately, it fell very far. Jennifer, the difference between you and me, we end up in the same place. But I don't think Donald Trump has any principles. I think he's a purely transactional guy. And what he was trying to negotiate was, frankly, much more meaningful to him. And so not insulting Kim Jong-un was much more meaningful to him than, than frankly, Otto Warmbier. And by the way, that's not necessarily an awful thing, as, as awful as what happened not a warm beer. But to say that Donald Trump doesn't have principles flies in the face of everything that we've been talking about, and we were talking about prison reform is another thing that we were talking about. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever to say that the man is not principled. We've got to stop. We'll be back with another full hour of Beyond the Beltway. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us today. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. 
Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt debt in in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, the experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. From coast to coast and border to border, this is Beyond the Beltway. I'm Bruce Dumont, live every Sunday night from Chicago. Nice to have you with us. We've been chatting around the table for a whole hour now. Those out in radio and TV land, they want to get in on this conversation. Let's go to Tom in Youngstown, Ohio. Go ahead, Tom. You're on the air. Hello. Yes. Yes. Hello, Bruce. Um, You know, you uh, were talking about the uh, whole situation with uh, uh, Trump uh, saying that uh, he takes Kim at his word when he said he didn't know what was going on. Uh, you know, let me throw a few things out here. And this goes to also the uh, Prince situation, Saudi Arabia, the Russians, and Putin, and so forth. I don't believe that any dictator micromanages an entire country. They put other ruthless people into positions who they, you know, let handle the situation uh, to a certain extent accordingly. And, I mean, you know, do you really think that Hitler uh, ran Nazi Germany by micromanaging everything, and the same with Stalin and Russia and 
I mean, they had a general idea, or even uh, Saddam Hussein with his sons. But, Tom, but Tom, in, in the case of Otto Warmbier, if I'm, hello, are you there? Yes. In the case of uh, Adam Warmbier, Otto. That, uh, Otto, that was a story that was on the front page of, of newspapers all over the world. I mean, that was a big story. That was a cause celeb. There's no way in the world that Kim Jong-un did not know that Otto Warmbier was in one of his prisons. There's, there's, there's no way that you would not, There's not a handful of American citizens that were in that country. He had to absolutely know who the American citizen was that had just recently been arrested and sentenced to a prison camp. Right. Back what, to you, what Tom. What I'm saying is I, I don't believe that he knew. Look, look it, it, let, let's look at it this way, too. Um, a North Korean who was thrown in prison uh, probably stood a better chance of survival because they were eating dirt. They knew exactly what to expect. You take a guy off the American street and throw him into that situation, especially a young kid, he has no idea what's going on. And his uh, psychological makeup is such that he's probably not going to survive under the same circumstances. Mm -hmm. And and all I'm saying is I I think we have possibly two truths going on here. Number one, uh, Wormbeer's parents are right in saying that, you know, Trump maybe shouldn't have backed this idea, but Trump is right in saying, look, i got to negotiate, and i got to take him at his word because he may not have known about it. And I'm not saying he didn't. I'm saying he may not have known about it. Uh, I, I can recall, he, for example, But, but here, here, here's, the, here's the point. The, the president consistently gives the benefit of the doubt to dictators. That's part of the M.O. Now, you may like that or you may not like that, but that's the M.O. here. There's a pattern where he, he gives the benefit of the doubt to dictators. Other presidents, Republicans and Democrats, did not do that. It's a, it's a change in, in, in position, I agree. But, but it's something that maybe would... It's a cha- but it's also, it's, it's also a, it's a change in the, in, the, in the person as well. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no way that had Ronald Reagan been asked the same question, he would have found a far different answer than Donald Trump. He would have been able to soften it. He would have been able to have been strong. He would have been able to give his Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall moment because that was the uniqueness of Ronald Reagan. Now, I don't think it was just because he was an actor. There might have been a degree, a greater degree of empathy that Ronald Reagan had that Donald Trump does not have. Can I, can I point out another example sure. I was thinking sure. of as I was on, on hold for the through break there? Uh, you, you know, I can recall uh, uh, in the Nixon administration when uh, things were getting hot, and, and there was testimony afterwards that uh, uh, Haldeman had to call back G. Gordon Liddy because Liddy came out of a meeting with Nixon, supposedly, where Nixon said, you know, this, this uh, Anderson guy, Jack Anderson's really getting under my skin, so to speak, and, and we need to do so. We, we need to uh, stop this guy. And, and the supposed conversation was that he went to Haldeman and said, he, uh, Nixon wants me to off to yep, kill yep. I remember Jack that. Anderson. And, and, and I guess what I'm saying is, I, I, I don't, you know, if that can happen in the United States of America, I, I have no doubt that uh, if you're putting a bunch of ruthless people in charge because you're a dictator and you have a lot of people under you who have, are the same mentality, it's much more easily possible for them to do things along the same lines with, with, with your, you know, this blessing, could, so to speak. This, by the way, the, what, your what, knowledge. what you've just described describes to me uh, something I heard when, when, when uh, 
uh, Michael Cohen was testifying last week, and he said, you know, you know, the boss didn't always give you a directive, but you sort of knew what the boss wanted you to do. And I would say that w that exists in, in a lot of power situations. If you're, if you're part of the cadre that's around right. the king, right. you know what the king wants. The king doesn't have to say, I would say the same thing for leadership of City Hall in the days of Richard J. Daley. Richard J. Daley didn't have to say, hey, do this. His people knew what the boss wanted to do. So, so and I think that's the case in, in a lot of, I think that's the case with probably most leaders of the world. That's right. You know, you so don't it have could to, also be a true statement then that Kim saying that, look, I didn't know that this was happening. I mean, look. No, I don't, buy, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that for a minute because also Otto Warmbier's story was part of diplomatic discussions with them. So it was not just a media story. There were diplomatic discussions trying to get him out. Uh, that was going on for years or several, a couple of years. And again, uh, something of that nature would have made it to Kim. Anyway, we move on. Thanks very much for your call. Let's go to Caseyville, Illinois, listening to us on Facebook. Go ahead, Paul. Are you there? Line two. Paul. Going once, going twice, gone. Rick, are you there on line three in Nashville? Who was that? That was Paul. That was Paul. Huh, great impression. Let's go to uh, Rick in Nashville, Tennessee. Go ahead. Line three, are you there, Rick, on the Internet? Well... All the lines have dropped off. Oh, well, so the lines are open. 1-800-723-8289 if you'd like to jump on and have the conversation. See how, how, how easy it is for some people to, to uh, justify this kind of behavior. It's really, this is one of the more remarkable things about all of this, how people, their ideological perspective um, determines their position on, on this stuff. I mean, it's, it's just so incredible. You know, how yeah, that's why I don't think there's going to be many votes changed because of uh, the, the testimony last yeah, week. I agree. It's right. going to reinforce right. positions. Right. Um, uh, the, the, one of the other pet topics of the national news media has been uh, uh, Mr. Kushner. Uh, and my question to you is, um, should he have a security clearance? Because it looks as though the President of the United States, you know, went out of his way to basically say to the Chief of Staff, John Kelly, that they wanted uh, Mr. Kushner to have a, a clearance. Does that bother anybody? Well, there's evidence this week, apparently, uh, at least assertions, let me say assertions, that both the chief of staff at the time and the White House counsel at the time, Don McGahn, both wrote internal memos saying that the president had ordered uh, uh, a security clearance to be given to Jared Kushner over their objections and the objections of the intelligence officials in charge of uh, approving security clearances. That's a serious problem. Yeah, we'll have to get into the discussion of um, whether Kushner should have that security clearance or not. It is up to Trump to determine who has the security clearance. My thing is, is I frankly think that having your family in the administration next to you causes more problems yes. than benefits. Yes. So that's my position on it. Yes. Mm. But it may be that the family is the only might be the only people he can trust. Mm. Back shortly from Chicago. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. 
leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Nice to have you with us. Uh, let us. We're talking about Jared Kushner. And, uh, Jennifer, you wanted to make a point uh, in defense of uh, Mr. Kushner. Well, Jared Kushner works on a lot of sensitive um, foreign policy matters. He does a lot of work in the Middle East. Um, there's, you know, he's obviously a right-hand man of the president. And uh, Trump has every right to give him a security clearance if that's what he wants to do. I don't know what the objections were or why the objections were made or if they were made because we don't have this, like you said, Michael, they're allegations. I just think, and I've always thought, that having Jared and Ivanka uh, next to Trump in the White House was going to reap mm. more problems than we needed. Frankly, um, from my perspective, they are, uh, they're not conservatives. They never identified as conservatives. Um, and that always uh, makes me suspicious. And it made a lot of us suspicious. And we don't need, from my own perspective, we don't need to constantly have to worry about them all the time. Um, but uh, the president has chosen to have them there because he trusts them. And he feels that he needs to have them there. That's the most important thing that I think a president needs. They have yeah. to have someone that they can trust. And in this particular case, you have Jared Kushner, who he trusts, or you have someone who has been um, basically cut down by the intelligence community, and they're likely to recommend someone else. And so then the question is, if you're the president of the United States, well, okay, when, when the intelligence community says they're sending somebody over, is that person loyal to me, or are they loyal to someone in the intelligence community wow. See, but who then, gave that, them... Those kinds of distinctions those, are new. That's new territory for this country. I mean, it's so... I mean, it's a, No, it's, it's new so, territory it's so, for it to be discussed. Right. True. It's that's always true. been there. That's true. I mean, but, I mean, it, it, again, it's an indication of his personality-oriented um, uh, administration, you but know? Keep, and keep in mind, when you say a president of these people that he or she can trust, one of the things that he or she needs is people who he trusts enough that they can walk into the Oval Office and say, I disagree with you on yes. this, and here's yes. why. And, right. and you as the president have enough confidence that you're going to listen to what that person says. I, think I don't know whether that exists And or they not. need oh, institutional I, I, memory. I, I disagree. I think Jarrett and uh, Ivanka both have the ability to go in uh, especially Ivanka, to go into yes. the president and say, Dad, you're wrong. Right, okay. which is what has given us some pause I, I um, from some my side. Because I agree, because they are moderate to liberals. They are, and on social issues, um, they haven't, Ivanka they haven't is definitely... They haven't manifested oh, yes. it yet. Oh, yes, they have it in many ways. and um, Manifested in what way? Well, Ivanka, for one, um, she has been very vocal in having government-funded child care. 
and that is something, I'm all for childcare, but the matter of government funding of it, I'm not for just for low-income people, but for all people, is something that we disagree with. She's and she has been very vocal. Leap, too. Yes, and that is something, um, the devil's in the details on that. Okay, so that's a whole other discussion. But would you acknowledge that issues like that, especially, uh, those are issues that could bring some Republican women back to support the president in 2020. I don't know the how many... The issues that may not be important to you I, I think that's the conventional wisdom, that when you give ground on those types of issues, that all these women are going to start running for you. I don't really think that's the case, because not you still all. have the pro-choice issue. You still have other issues that women who have beliefs like that generally want to see that go along with it. And then in the process, you lose some of your base, which he can absolutely not afford to lose your base. So I think there's a tightrope back there. You do want to be more appealing to as many women as you can, but do you do it by spending more money and walking uh, back your um, your positions? Jared is also the architect of the uh, criminal justice reform. Yes. Uh, and that, that would not have happened without him uh, blowing in the president's ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking about uh, the president's ear, um, some people in this country would like a new president and a new ear, two sets of ears. Okay. And so that leads us into a discussion, 2020 Democratic primary. Uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders literally uh, is about one mile from where we're doing this program this right. evening. He's got a big rally over at Navy Pier. Uh, and so uh, there'll probably be uh, uh, traffic jams uh, getting out of here this evening. But my question to you is, uh, is, is he the guy to beat? Is he the guy to beat Michael Bauer well, for the nomination? You know what? Bernie Sanders worries me in the Democratic primary because he walks in with, with, a, with a certain substantial constituency you know, that's going to stick with him throughout. And, and if you have a field of what's looking like 14, 16, maybe even 20 announced Democratic candidates, having that significant base, that plurality perhaps – is going to get him through the primaries. Now, what I fear is, should he get the nomination, there is still a lot of heartache from some of the Hillary supporters toward Bernie Sanders over what happened in the general election and and in the primary in uh, 2016. And just as a number of Bernie supporters stayed home and didn't vote for Hillary, or or even some of them, 10% of them, voted for Trump, my fear is if Bernie's the nominee of the Democratic Party, you're going to see a number of Hillary supporters stay home and not vote. Well, I think, back. I think that what we saw with that war of words that happened between the Hillary camp and the Bernie camp that, that sprung up where you know the expletives used about, yes. about Hillary, that really signals something there, that that yeah. animosity is alive and well and that the Clintons still have power. Because what happened right after that? Bernie's top campaign people left. They split. The day after this happened. Now, why did that happen? We don't precisely know, but they went out in a blaze of glory. I think that Bernie Sanders' time, even though he had that big money bomb that just happened, it's not unprecedented. Ross Perot had one as well. Um, He is old school now. We've got a bunch of progressives running, and they're younger, and they're more attractive. And, and they've they're not, got... they're not all male. And they're not all male. They've but, got but other I, things. I don't think that this race, that Bernie Sanders, quite frankly, has a prayer, money aside, because two years is a long time, and boy, have we got a bunch I, I of socialist candidates I, running. I think Donald Trump would love for Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee. Well, his comments on Venezuela and Maduro are 
yeah. are really uh, hurting him with the Democrat community in yes. Florida as yes. well, and that's not something that you want to do. Right. So, what do you think, Celine? Is Ber- Bernie Sanders? Uh... I, I think I think he's um, his views have been uh, diffused throughout the the, uh, the candidate community. So the originator doesn't get credit. The originator of no, the ideas. No, I don't think. Get I mean, credit. he gets a little credit. He gets. I mean, he's he's revered by a lot of people, but he's not. A, he's not a, an attractive candidate. His really? his age, his gender, uh, and and uh, you know other things have more valence this year than than they did in, in his last. Uh, you know, often what the, about from your? There's there's a meme online, uh, at least in libertarian circles, that basically says. Uh, 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 AOC is basically the Bernie Sanders that you want to have sex with. Uh, to, to, to backtrack on this for a second, just, just to give an what example of what's that's, oh that's what, what's going on in the Democrats. That used to be a glass of beer. Now it's sex. What, Not me. Uh, what, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on in, in, in the circles right now? What you're seeing is Not me either. Actually. Is just, just to go back a few weeks ago, there was the Green New Deal. We don't have to talk about it. It's ridiculous to discuss the details of it. But when it came out right away, you had uh, um, you had Cory Booker, you had uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, they all immediately signed on to supporting it without knowing anything about it. And what that says to me is they want to get on that train. And and Bernie is kind of the you know the one that was leading that train originally, the one that started it and got it off the ground where people weren't really afraid to talk about socialism in a public setting anymore and, and to be afraid of that word. So I think that's where it starts. The, 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 a lot of those kids are trying to latch onto it in any way they can to help them, and it's not helping them so far. Elizabeth Governor, Warren Governor, is at Governor 7%. Governor Isley of, uh, Isley of, uh, of Washington. Uh, he jumped into the race today. He wants to make climate change his big right. issue. Mm-hmm. Hickenlooper is, is jumping Hickenlooper in, is, in a few uh, days. T- uh, and I think America needs Hickenlooper. What do you think? <laughs> well, for his name alone. I, 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 I just want to say, I think the Democrats are going to have a lot of candidates. But there's a number of really strong candidates who are already jumping in. I think Kamala Harris. I think uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar. Um, uh, Michael Bloomberg apparently is going to announce. Mm. Uh, I think Sherrod Brown is a very strong I he, candidate. I thought, he, I thought he decided against it. Uh, apparently, he's looking for office space and talking to personnel. Wow, running, running as a, a as a Democrat, Schult- okay, as, as a moderate Democrat. Who's so, the strongest one? Who can win? The issue is if you want someone to who can win, win the general, who? not the primary. Can you I guys, tell you something? The, in 2016, Please. when we started with the Republican primary, and we had 17 Trump candidates. Was 1%. Trump was at one percent. Mm-hmm. So, so this thrashing out process right. actually does a really good thing. It, it's yes. a little it, bit of Game of Thrones does. and survival of the fittest. But, but the best, you know, or the most effective, rise to the top. <laughs> That's actually. what you were about to I, say. I, I put my <laughs> line back. The, but the most effective, rise to the top. The cream rises to the top. So we'll see on the Democratic but, side. But you know what's, what's, a, cream, what's amazing right? about this? Well, there's a lot of amazing things about this. I am stunned, really, and I, it takes a lot to stun me. And cynical is, is all get out. But I am stunned at how in two years' time, because Hillary used to make a big deal of, I'm not a socialist. When she would go up against Bernie Sanders, she'd say this, I'm not a socialist. Now what do we have? We have a field, a very large field, where almost all of them have absolutely no problem being, uh, in fact, they won't say whether they're socialists or not. They want to run from the question. She doesn't, and and Tulsi Gabbard. So you have two people there, but this is out of a very large field. And Michael Bloomberg and Sherrod Brown. Yeah, well... Biden. But if you ask them what their thoughts are on socialism, not Bloomberg, but if you ask Sherrod Brown, you ask them what they think. They're not exactly running screaming from the room. It's not just about the primary. 
it's amazing. I, I it's am the wave of going the future, to be, Jennifer. well, I'm going to be very, you say it's the wave <laughs> of the future. You still have this large swath of Democrat voters, traditionally minded Democrats, we still have those, who are going to look at this, okay? Trump was able to peel some of them off, or otherwise he wouldn't have won. We're going to look at this field. He's vaguely socialist as well. That's why he peeled. He he was vaguely socialist himself. That's why he peeled some of them off. He was vaguely socialist. We'll have to get into exactly what you think about the populist. Yes, socialism. I would take issue with. But the the field is amazingly, amazingly far left without a lot of variety. So I'd be interested to see if that's going to change. We will follow whatever. I did. This is the earliest that a campaign has started. I think we're already into the 2020 campaign. I'm Bruce Tubon. We'll talk more about that and other important issues when we return. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Back in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, Michael Bauer is here, Salim Uwakil, Brian Lambrick, and Jennifer Nevins. They join, that's the foursome this evening. And uh, we mentioned this uh, last week on the program, but again, uh, uh, there was a mayor's race, uh, a vote on on this past Tuesday. And as Michael Bauer mentioned uh, in the last hour, uh, the the 14-person field has been uh, narrowed down to two people, the two finalists in the runoff on April 2nd. Both will be African-American Progressives. One is Tony Prickwinkle, who is the president of the Cook County Board, one of the largest organi- you know, political entities in the United States. And the other is Lori Lightfoot, uh, who is an attorney and an outspoken uh, uh, spokesman, uh, a, a, an openly uh, lesbian, uh, running for mayor of Chicago. So uh, my question, I'm going to open this up discussion because whoever the next mayor of Chicago generally is a big national story. And I would say that the... The 14-person field in Chicago, which had many candidates, is not unlike the many, the large field that we're looking at at the Democratic Party. And I think some of the battle for the hearts and minds of Democrats in the national uh, Democratic Party is we're going to be witnessing that for the next month here in Chicago as, as the diverse Democratic constituencies of Chicago try to figure out who they want to anoint as the next mayor of the city. Now, we know that uh, you are, uh, Michael Bauer, you're the chairman of Lori Lightfoot's campaign, so I'm going to defer to uh, Salim for just a second because you've been an observer of the Chicago scene. You know know it. I know you know Tony Preckwinkle well. I don't know whether you know Lori as well as the others, but what's your assessment? Because you recently wrote a a, a Facebook post that the African-American community they may be they should be celebrating what's going on but maybe they're missing the significance of this election and we should also mention 
that a third candidate in the race, Dr. Willie Wilson, he won all of the predominantly black wards most, except most two. Of them. Except, except two. Except two, right. So what's, yeah, what's going um, on out there? Well, there, there's, a, there's a, a lot of disillusionment out there. Um, a lot of black people feel that their, their choice was rejected. Um, they, they, many didn't support uh, Tony uh, because of you know, many reasons um, we, we talked about before. And they're, well, conser- they're conservative African-Americans, which you have talked about in many cases, the, the people that listen to your show. I mean, yeah. it, it is a mis, uh, misunderstanding of politics in Chicago that all blacks are all, liberals. All pro- progressives or liberals. Right. In fact... Um, in Chicago, there's, there's some serious animosity toward progressives uh, in, in the black community. They, they see progressives as, as usurping their, uh, the power that they have achieved uh, after a lot of struggle. And their candidate was Dr. Willie Wilson. Um, and part of the reason for that was because he, re- he represented a rejection of the, of the status quo in many ways, from, from his uh, Ebonics accent to his um, uh, to, to some of the policies he he uh, in, he wanted to institute. Well, by the way, we should also mention for those around the country, uh, one of the other big pieces of news is that uh, uh, Bill Daly, who was the son of Richard J. Daly, uh, the the boss of the city for many years, and Richard M. Daly, the the son of uh, and brother of Bill Daly, he lost. Uh, he finished third. He finished out of the running. So uh, the fact that and a many Daly people lost thought that he Chicago. was just, he was a, a shoe in. I think most of us yeah. around the table thought he was a shoe in. Well, I thought you were going to be in the runoff. That's for I, certain. I just want to say this. Michael I think, Bauer. I think what a lot of voters uh, expressed from my perspective last Tuesday is, is is they're unhappy with the way Chicago's running. And not just running recently. They're unhappy with the way that Chicago's been running for a long time. Mm-hmm. They're unhappy. Um, uh, we saw several aldermen, incumbent aldermen, who have been in power for a long time, who not only lost, they lost huge by two to one. Yeah. You know, we saw a number of incumbent aldermen who are now in runoffs and, and did pretty poorly. In, in, in and their also there election. was an incumbent alderman who was indicted and he won big, Ed Burke. Yeah, Ed Burke, yeah, right. No, he didn't win big. 270 votes would have, had he had 270 votes less, he would have been in a runoff. Hmm. It was 270 votes that saved him from a runoff. I'm actually surprised he did as poorly as he did. Hmm. You know, okay. he, he, got, he got about 54% of the vote, an award that he has dominated for decades. So what, what, ha- what happens? I, I, I want to sort of draw the comparison about what is likely to be happening in Chicago in the next, uh, next month as people figure out who they're going to vote for. And how does that relate to what might be happening at the National Democratic Party uh, in in 2020? I think there's a huge parallel there because you have your two candidates in Chicago now. One of the two is going to be the choice. Okay, But when you're looking at nationally, you have this field of Democrats here, most of whom are far left. There's a couple exceptions that are left. I would would not call them moderates, but they're on the left. And you have this, um, this group here. But the person doesn't have to be chosen from that field. They can cross over voters and vote for the Republican. And, when, and you were talking about the conservative African-American community in Chicago. Mm. We have that in this country as well. And when you have and a host of other people who are more moderate or have religious beliefs that conflict with third-term abortion or the infanticide, different things that are going on now, they're sitting up and they're taking notice. And they're looking at this. And I would not rest on my laurels if I were Nancy Pelosi or other people in power and look at the situation and say, hey, regardless, the Democrats are going to come home. 
they're going to come home to one of our candidates because they're Democrat voters. That may not be the case because this field has gone so far left, I actually no. don't mind it in that I think well, it's going to help but, Trump get reelected. But, but the situation in Chicago is you have the two candidates that are remaining are progressive. Yes. And, but but two-thirds of the voters voted against them. But right. one of and, them and, is going to make it, it in, though. I mean, I know that, that people did not all, you know, both, some people I think, did I not think, vote. I think the parallel is that both of them will be, will be striving for the black vote. Yes. Uh, bo- yes. Both of them will be tr- trying to do whatever they can do to, to attract Willie black Wilson's vote. But black they're not only going to go for the black vote. Keep in mind, they're going to go for the vote on the southwest side and the northwest side, yes. a predominantly Caucasian vote. Right. That mm-hmm. Bill Daley, Jerry Joyce, and Gary McCarthy together pretty much got. Right. You know, so uh, but I don't think going I, for the Hispanic. They're, votes, they're going to. I think they're going to want. Gary Chico got. They're going to want those votes, but I don't think they're going to really because they, because they don't really need those votes in, in, in a sense. Um, if they can pull the majority of the black votes, the, Lori Lightfoot already has uh, support on, on the north side. The north side, right. So right. Um, I don't think they need to. You know, they they only ha- they have a specific uh, target audience. Uh, yes. But uh, you have you've got yes. a situation yes. where Absolutely. where the the uh, by the way, Dr. Wilson ran fourth. He got about fifty six thousand votes. Mm-hmm. But the unique thing is uh, he is um, uh, he spent a lot of time talking with the preachers of the yes. city. So he is definitely more conservative. Uh, what remains of the Republican Party? It's in clergy the, in base, city. in fact. They you know? they they supported the Republican Party, or at least elements of the Republican Party supported, supported him. Uh, Willie Wilson. Yes, they did. So you've got a unique situation. The dynamics of that. He's run before, and yet his big issue was taxes. I mean, he is the, he was ep- absolutely the most anti-tax person. Yes, he was running. That's what the Republicans so the decisions, wanted. The decisions that those that followed him have to decide is. What, what brought them to Dr. Wilson? Because if Willie Wilson endorsed Tony Preckwinkle, who is known for M- Madam Tax Taxwinkle. That doesn't, <laughs> Queen Sugar. That doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, the, the big issue, which I think is, to what extent are African American, not only the ministers, but again, those that, that call themselves conservatives or religious voters. LGBT. To what extent, to what extent can they support a candidate who is an open uh, lesbian. Yes. I mean, that's going to be an issue. That's going to be an issue. Nobody wants to talk about it publicly. Well, they're talking about it. Oh, everyone is. A lot of people are talking about it. Yeah, they're talking about it. There's actually been some national stories Mm -hmm. on on this very issue. And I talked with with Lori Lightfoot about it when I I did the interview with her uh, about three weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and and she said, well, the the number of LGBTQ plus uh, persons in the black and brown communities is much larger than most people think. It is. So although the preachers may be saying something, the people in the congregations or in the choirs might be thinking differently. Maybe. I think there's another constituency also that we're we're forgetting about. We're assuming that the voters who voted on February 26th are going to be the same voters who vote on April 2nd. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I would suggest to you that a number of people did not vote because mm-hmm. there were so many candidates right. that they were, just, they were just really confused. So we right. only had 33 right. 34% turnout. Yes, and with only two candidates in the race, right. you will have absolutely. a significant number of people who did not vote on April 2nd, who did not vote on February 26th, who will show up on April 2nd. So the two candidates right. will have to bet all that out right. for those people. And also, uh, for regular listeners of the show, Amara Enya, who's been a regular on this show for about the last three years, 
Uh, she did run for mayor. Uh, she did not do well. She was endorsed by Chance the Rapper and, and Kanye uh, and Kanye West. Uh, her whole campaign was focused on turning out the millennial vote. She was almost laser focused on bringing out the millennial vote. Only 11 percent of millennials in Chicago voted. So she put all of her eggs in a basket that did not come to fruition. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that some of the candidates would like to have her endorsement, but I'm not so sure it's going to move that many votes. But, but also remember that her biggest backer, Chance the Rapper, his father is the campaign manager for Tony Preckwinkle. That's right. So it, it all becomes very complicated, <laughs> and how this all works out, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of this is very Chicago. There's mm. a lot of ties, a lot of Machiavellian, a lot of Machiavellian um, maneuvers in this. Right? That's right. Yes. And right now, what it is, and it, it's also uh, a situation where the the, the large uh, Mexican and Hispanic communities in Chicago, their turnout was relatively low uh, as well, considerably considerably lower than yes. Susanna Mendoza thought that it would be, and she yeah. was the leading Hispanic uh, in the in the race along with. Chico, Although she was did, called a lino. Yeah, she did not. Uh, Latino in name only, right? right. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's our discussion of what's happening in Chicago. When we come back, we'll go back to national discuss- uh, national talk conversation. And we thank you very much for joining us tonight from coast to coast and border to border. One more segment coming up. Don't go away. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. One of the uh, topics we discussed briefly uh, during the uh, commercial break was um, uh, the allegations that anti-Semitism is growing and that uh, the Democratic, some of the new members of the Democratic Congress are saying things that uh, they've been uh, slapped on the wrist for, that they are fomenting uh, perhaps uh, anti-Semitism. And yet there are some people that might suggest that uh, these are issues that need to be discussed. Uh, The bottom line is that some have suggested uh, that following the Benjamins, which means basically uh, the allegation was that that many members of Congress are basically influenced or bought by the Israeli lobby. A lot of money goes to them, and uh, they consistently support Israel. And if you call that to anyone's attention, uh, at least in today's climate, uh, that's viewed as anti-Semitic. Do you view that as anti-Semitic, Michael? Ab- absolutely. The reason many members of the United States Congress and many elected officials support the state of Israel is first and foremost because we have shared values with the state of Israel. We, we, we believe in a democratic form of government. We believe in free speech. We believe in a free press. We believe in an independent judiciary. We, we have very 
common values. And Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, by the way, with, that exists and, and is the only country with which we do have shared values. And, and the comments by Ilhan Omar are frankly, from my perspective, so disgusting and, and so revolting. Um, it is mind-boggling that a member of the United States Congress would be saying these things in 2019. But this, unfortunately, is a plague of anti-Semitism that is spreading like a contagious virus these days. Salim, do you see it that way? No, I, I don't. I, I think um, there is a problem with anti-Semitism, no doubt. Um, but I think that we, we in this country, we, we, we have a, more of a problem with the kind of imbalance in the way we portray Palestinians. Um, and and this, this animus against the BDS movement, uh, this animus, for example, Angela Davis was recently um, uh, denied um, being, being awarded a, a human rights award in Birmingham because a Jewish organization said that she, she, you know, she supported BDS. There was such an outroar, an, an out, such an outrageous uproar because of that, that now they have um, rescinded that, that that um, re, re, uh, award. Uh, no, they, they've they've now rescinded the um, refusal to give her the award, and they've they've awarded her, <laughs> and she and she has been um, showered with accolades uh, since then. And people are saying, "Wow, how can we possibly have been so influenced by this organization to deny her this award because of this because of her support for BDS?" It seems very obvious that we have to support. Um, a, an organization that is against oppression, the oppression of people in their own homeland. Uh, to, it, it, been, it has been denounced by the UN several times. Uh, uh, all, of, all of the international organizations have denounced Israel's denial of the Palestinians' human rights, and yet we in this country act as if, you know, it's all right. It doesn't matter if you take someone's land. And so uh, there's an organization, a movement has developed to to, def, to 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 fight this 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 uh, view, and the BDS movement is is, is what that is. is L- let me suggest this: the BDS issue, whether you are pro BDS or anti BDS, is an issue of freedom of speech. And 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 I know I know people who support the BDS movement. I know many people. Explain who, BDS for those that aren't boycott, divestment, and sanction. Okay. Movement that that there should be a boycott, sanction, and divestment of of. In some figures, uh, any company that does business on the West, any Israeli company that does business on the West Bank, there are also some people who are pro-BDS who say you should boycott, sanction, and divest with any company that exists in Israel at all, and and anywhere in Israel. So the BDS movement itself is a confusing term. But that, to me, is an issue of freedom of speech, whether you're pro-BDS or anti-BDS. When you start saying that support for Israel comes from uh, showing the Benjamins. Well, that's, uh, just, that's who, just an anti-Semitic who, 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 comment. The, 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 the scholar at the University of Chicago, who him, they did a, a, a deep study of the, the effect of the, the Jewish lobby, the APAC, and they were very condemnatory of that, of that lobby and how it has affected U.S. diplomacy and our foreign policy um, options. Um, I, I, I just can't recall the names of the two very renowned I, scholars. I know who you mean. Yeah. Well, so, I, I, so if, if they're not being denounced for that, it was scholarly. It had scholarly rigor that everyone uh, admired, and yet they're not being denounced. And yet you're denouncing other folks who say this, 
but primarily well, I would suggest to you the two University of Chicago professors have been have been soundly denounced as being anti-Semitic. Oh no, and, they and, have, and that their they. research is tainted by their anti-Semitic perspectives. And also, you know, absolutely, if, if this woman has such a problem, that's a problem. Calling every criticism of Israel anti-Semitic, no, and, that, it's and not. that's. And that that's the problem. That's what people are reacting to. This, this, if you, cr- if you create this reflexive attempt to, to denounce and 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 uh, to de- deride people who are critical of Israel. There, there's a significant difference in in the, in criticizing the policies of the government of Israel, which anyone is free to do, including myself. Okay. By the way, I will tell you, I'm highly critical of many of the policies of the Bibi Netanyahu administration versus condemning Israel as an apartheid state. Uh, Jimmy Carter wrote a book about it. Uh, Apartheid, that was the title of the book. This is Jimmy Carter, one of the most revered ex-presidents. That was his conclusion. It's apartheid. He was revered as an ex-president, not so revered as a president. If this woman was so concerned about the influence of foreign money affecting these Democrat and Republican reps, she would have gone after the Democrat and Republican reps for taking this money. But instead what she did is she made pot shots at... Jewish organizations. Okay, that's who her target was. It wasn't APAC. against the people who were taking the money. It was against those organizations, and I think it was and an extremely cheap. Even contribute a single dollar. Oh, you know, but, but you know, I mean. APAC supporters, including myself, give money to candidates. But but I have to tell you, evangelical Christians give money Absolutely. to candidates who are going to be pro-life, and that's the whole system of government right. we have. That's the way it works. People, people In fact, the Jewish checks. lobby, is, the Zionist lobby, as they would say, uh, is, a lot of, of those are evangelical Christians. She didn't need to single the Jews out, okay? She didn't. She did it because, frankly, she's anti-Semitic. We oh. touched the, the nerve at the end of the show. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> we'll bring this conversation back as it won't end. Thanks to all of our guests, also to Sam Greenberg and Fritz Goldman for their assistance in the production of this program. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway. And on the silver screen, not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us. But our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. 
Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt debt in in its place. place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, the experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv.